we started this uh, series on discipleship a couple weeks ago, and we've talked about discipleship a lot here at West Seattle Christian, and that means being like Jesus. And that's a very simple, simple way of putting it, but we want to learn from him how to be like him. We thought it would be a good idea to start this series uh, adding to that definition by looking at what the word gospel means. A lot of people, a lot of Christians have heard the word gospel, and we have kind of just assumed that gospel means I'm saved. There's good news. I'm saved from all of this bad stuff in my life that's happened to me. I'm saved from all this bad stuff in my life that I've done to myself. I'm saved from my sin. But we examined the word gospel and went through the scriptures, and we gained a new understanding that for Jesus, when he talks about the gospel, the good news, the euangelion, as we, as we looked at that Greek word, it's more than that. Every time Jesus uses the term gospel, he talks about the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Okay? And so we realize that there's a deeper, a deeper meaning to the gospel, and that deeper meaning has to do with not only what you're saved from, but what you're saved for. So that's where we started this series. Last week, we added on to that, and we started talking about the Imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God. And we looked at several scriptures that talked about how God has made us in his image, and he's made us in his image for a reason. He wants us to join him in the creative work that he is up to in the world, in delivering the good news. And we talked about how because you're made in his image, there is a thing that he's gifted you with, a thing that you would do no matter what your job is in this world. There's something that you just have to do that he's given to you. And so I encouraged you to ask him what that is and discover what that is in your life. And it's different for all of us. I asked you to read through Psalm 139, and we talked about how we can call those giftings out of each other uh, and so that the body can have a, a more full expression. And this week we're going to talk about, if you, if you look at your program, investing in the community is the subtitle, because part of discipleship means if you're going to be like Jesus, you have to do this together. If you go to our website and you look at our values, we say we want to be like Jesus, we want to do this life together, we want to do it for the sake of others, and we want to be generous. So we talk about all those things together. And so this week we're talking about how we do that together and what that really means. We're talking about investing in our community and thereby investing in the larger community. Now, if you've been here for the last couple of years, as I've been here, I like to go through all the background stuff. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to dive in, and hopefully, for those of you who are history people, you're going to be like, yes, I love this. And some of the rest of you are going to be like, I thought I was done with school. Can we please move on? But I want to go through some of the background material so you can understand what it means to be investing in the community. So we're going to look at this, some scriptures and the people of that time. And to me, we find a lot of interesting things. One question that I ask when, I, when I'm looking at a particular passage and I'm looking at these passages that were written in the, in the first century, and then when every time they're talking about scripture, they're talking about the Old Testament, and I'm like, okay, what are they talking about there? Um, I like to ask the question, how did people back then view God? How did people back then see God? What did, what did the notion of God mean to them? And we've had a number of different series in here where we've talked about the background of the pagan, quote-unquote, pagan culture, which is kind of funny because Christians were called atheists 
And they called other people pagans. <laughs> or Jewish people called other people pagans. And when Christians came along, everybody else who, who subscribed to the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods, they looked, at, they looked at the Christians and said, you're atheists because you don't believe in our gods, which is kind of interesting. But we've done this a number of times in here. We've looked at all of the temples to the different gods that were available, the smorgasbord that people could pick from and choose from based on what was going on in their life or whatever they thought that was the best god, okay? What's really interesting is that each god had its own temple. They all had a temple. And if you look at the pictures of those temples, there were differences um, in how big they were, how ornate they were, um, what was on the outside, what was on the inside, and we're going to dive into that a little bit. But here's one thing I want you to remember and pick up today. The purpose of each and every temple was to show you what that God was like. The purpose of each temple to each different God in the pantheon of gods that were available was to show you what each one of those gods was like. The purpose of each temple was to show you what that God was was like. Each god in that ancient civilization had its own temple. They all had one. And for example, we, we talked about this one a little while ago. Let's put the first slide up here. This is a modern day picture of the temple of Pergamum. You can see the theater down on the right and the temple is up on the left and there's this walled structure and this is the ruins. You can see a road traveling off from the structure on the left to the right. And along that road, there were 27 temples to different gods there. Okay, And you can go there today and you can look at it and all the ruins of it. What I want you to understand is that the purpose of the temple was to share with the people what that god was like. So... I'm going to show you some schematics. Let's go to the next slide. Often when you do a study on the different gods and the temples, you find modern photos of, of the ruins and that kind of stuff and the rubbles and the rocks. But when you read the description of these temples of old from old sources, you discover that many of them were painted many different colors. And so that, that picture that we just, when we look at the pictures, they're just like whitewashed ruins, right? But they would have been vibrantly painted, different colors, and there would have been murals and frescoes and things like that, maybe mosaic tiles laid out for the floor and that kind of thing. But here's what a typical temple would look like in its layout of the day. All the dots represent columns that are holding up a roof usually over it. Okay, So you have columns around the perimeter. And the first part that you would step into was called the temenos, or the temenos, okay? It, it would, temenos means a part that is cut off, and this is going to make more sense as we get to a couple more pictures here, but it meant a part that was cut off or a walled-off area or a paradise that was separated from the outside world. So usually in the temenos, around the columns, there would be plants that were planted. It was like a lush garden, okay? It was well taken care of. And so you would enter the temple into the Temenos, and there's this lush garden area around the columns. And basically, it was supposed to give you a foreshadowing of what this God could provide for you. Well manicured, well taken care of. Um, uh, Temenos was going to show you a picture of what you're entering into. Okay, So you would enter the temple through the Temenos and the lush garden. And then the second thing that you would step into was the Proneos. Okay? So at the end, on, on the right-hand side of that picture, you see a little white line in that dark line, and that's like the entryway into the proneos, okay? 
You're approaching, through the proneos, you're approaching the God who's going to be in that next chamber that we're going to talk about in a minute. The, this place, the proneos, was meant to give you a feeling that you were getting close to, that you're interacting with the particular God that you were there to see. So in the proneos, you might see smaller statues. You might see like an altar or some kind of basin with water on a pedestal. Or you might see um, something else, like a picture or a painting or something like that. It was going to show you a depiction of what that God was all about. So, you know, certain God might have a picture of grapes and wine. And we've talked about a lot of these in the past. Other gods would have pictures of cattle or pictures of grain or something like that. Okay. So there'd be different artifacts there that would provide an experience for you to know what that God was up to and what that God was all about. And then you see the little white line in the, in the dark line in the middle. There's a little white line, which means there's an entryway into that next chamber. Let's put the next slide off. And that's called the naos. You have the temenos, the proneos, and the naos. Okay. And you don't have to remember all those names. I just want you to remember the layout, okay? Everything was, you're entering further in, further in. This God is separated from you, and you have to go through different things to get to the inner sanctum. And then the naos, this is where you got to see and interact with directly with the God. And usually there would be a statue of that God in the naos that represented what that God was all about, whether it was Artemis or Demeter or Domitian or whoever it was, okay? So this is what it was like in the first century when the very first Christians began to emerge on the scene. There were, in every city, temples to different gods like this. What you need to realize then is that the Jewish people, where the Christians emanated from, they had a temple as well, right? So they had a temple to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And at the temple in Jerusalem, you would walk into the temple courts. And in the temple courts, there's a lot going on. And it was meant to invoke a sense of grandeur, paradise, and majesty. I want to show you a model, a picture of a model of that. This does not exist like this today. Okay. So you can see... Uh, there's this there's this structure with walls. You can see the gate that's the closest thing to us of golden doors. Outside of that would be would be the temenos. You walk through those golden doors. You're in the in the proneos. You walk through the second set of doors. You're in the na- you're in the naos. And in that that big tall part with the big door there, that's really the naos. Okay, what the Jewish people refer to as the holy of holies. Okay, if you've been in church for 10 minutes your whole life, you will know about that. Um, and there was a priest there. And for the Jewish temple, it was like the courtyard was the temenos. So that out, you see the outer columns all the way around? Okay. And then there was that section further in where Jewish men can go. And then that was the proneos. And then there was the inner sanctum, the room in the temple known as the Holy of Holies. Okay. And the priest would go in there once a year to be in the presence of God and receive... Uh, the, from the presence of God, some word maybe, or just maybe go in there and um, maybe come out and not have heard anything, and they'd wonder what that was like or what that was all about, okay? And anyway, if the priest was going to go in there, you may have heard this before, they would tie a rope around his ankle, and he'd walk in there, because, you know, if you're going to be in the very presence of God because he's so holy and you are not holy, you could just fall down dead. So how do they get you out? Because you're only allowed in there one day a year. Well, I guess the guy next year has a job to do when he goes in. <laughs> so they would tie an ankle 
or a rope around your ankle, and if you didn't come out, they would drag you out, you know? So, for the Jews, there was a naos, but only the elite could enter in. But what's interesting is that for our God, Yahweh, when you went into the Holy of Holies, there weren't any statues. There weren't any depictions of this God. He's the one true God. He can't really be seen like that. He's not going to be manifest physically like that. Or so they thought. (laughs) Um, the, The really interesting part of this to me is that every God gets a temple. Every God kind of needs a temple, at least as far as people are concerned. You know what happened to this temple? I want to show you how, how grand it looked. Let's go to the next picture. This is another model of it. You can see the four, four giant candelabras in, in the middle of the, of the proneos. Those would be lit around the Day of Atonement. And you could see the light from those all around the city. They were so big. Let's look at the next one. Here's, here's, here's a, you can see the Holy of Holies and how you would enter into the Naos through one, from the Proneos into the Naos. But here's what happened to this in 70 AD. Let's look at the next picture. The Romans destroyed it, pulled the, pulled the walls down, left it in ruins. Let's go to the next one so you can see how big this is. So it's kind of hard to see, but if you, if, there's a catwalk on the back left-hand side that puts it in perspective. If you were to stand next to these stones, that biggest stone, would I would barely be taller than it. These are really huge rocks. Okay. The temple was destroyed. It was crushed into the ground. So if this temple, which is where your God resides, and the purpose of the temple is to show you what your God is like, if it's destroyed... What do you do? What do you do? You would be devastated. If we didn't have a temple, how would you know what your God is like? How would other people know what your God is like? What would happen? The question then is, where is the temple? Before this temple existed, way back in the history and the story of the Hebrew people, all the way back to the narrative of Moses when he leads them out on an exodus, I want to go to the next slide and and we see this. This is the precursor to the temple known as the tabernacle. And I think some people think of it as just that the tent part in the middle, but it had this outer courtyard. And you can see once again, if you were outside the walls, that would kind of be the temenos and you'd see the fabric walls all the way around it. And it's basically a big tent wall that you could, you could unstake it, fold everything up, put it on carts, take it to the next place and then put it back out. Camping. Who likes to camp? few of us, okay? For the rest of you, too bad. Get used to it. Camping forever for 40 years, okay? And you just have to take it all down and put it back up. And that inner part, when you entered into there, that was like the mobile, it was like they had the mobile app for their, for their church, <laughs> you know, the mobile version of it. And that was the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, there's a curtain, and behind the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant, where the very presence of God resided. Okay, So before Moses was given the schematics for making this tabernacle, this tent where God's presence resided, Yahweh, God, he had something to say to Moses. And you can find that in Exodus 19, verses 3-6. And I'm going to put this up on the screen for you. 
And it says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So he basically says, I'm setting you apart as a whole people, and you're to tell this to everyone. And being set apart by the God of the universe is an amazing thing. It's a truly amazing thing. But you know what happened? When the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the priests were gone. The temple was gone. Who is going to tell us about our God? How would we know what he's like? Basically, the question on everybody's minds is, where is the temple? Matthew, if you fast forward in the story and you go to Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 through 51, it says, and when Jesus had cried out again, and this is when he's being crucified, when he had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So I want to put up a picture for you here. There is the Holy of Holies that would have been in place, the whole temp- the inner sanctum of the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus is being crucified on a hill outside the city. And when he gives up his spirit, that veil, that curtain behind which the, the, the presence of God is supposed to be, and there's an artist's rendition of inside, kind of a cutaway of what's inside the inner sanctum, That curtain is there, and it rips in two. It rips in two from top to bottom. And the most common commentary you will find in all the theological sources, um, I did that work for you. (laughs) If you have a study Bible, it's, it's just in there in a note, okay? But basically says, if you research this a little bit, the veil was torn, and it symbolizes the fact that God had left the temple. And his presence is no longer confined there, but he's moved on. He's moved out. He's now available to everyone. And the question is, how is he available to everyone? And then there's another thought. This veil was a big, giant curtain within the temple, and it separated people from the Holy of Holies. And the first thing that people often say uh, when they realize that God left the temple. It's kind of a statement of judgment on on the Jewish people, but also they take and internalize it on themselves as well, that the presence, God's presence couldn't dwell there any longer. The The more important thing is a recognition by a lot of theologians that he left the temple so that he could have access to us. There's no barriers between him and the people that he loved. There's no more barriers. God left the building. And he left it to come to you, <laughs> is basically what we should gather from that. So you fast forward through the narrative of the story of Jesus in the beginning of the church, and you get into the rest of the New Testament. You get Paul going around to all these churches all over the Mediterranean world, and he writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple. We are that temple. God has moved on. 
We have a really great building here, right? I've had some leaks lately, but we have a really great building here. It's paid off, right? We're not, yeah, woohoo! <laughs> we're not, we're a church that has zero debt. Pretty amazing. Uh, no building debt or anything like that. In fact, we have two buildings, but this building and that building over there, our old sanctuary chapel, they are not the temple. They are not where God resides. God resides in these buildings when we are here. Because we are his temple. We are his people. He has set us apart. He has left the building to have access to us. So our church is not a building. Our church is a people. So I'll ask you again, where is the temple? Where's the temple? Right. I see some of you going like this. It's in, it's in me. It's in you. It's in us. We are God's temple. Let's look at another scripture. 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God, and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living stones. Each one of you is a living stone, is what Peter is saying, that builds a whole house. Can you be a whole house by yourself, though? Can you be a whole house with just one stone? No. Am I complete? By myself, am I complete with that gift that God gave me, that thing that He put in me? If I make it all about that and I just do my thing, am I complete? No, it's good that you're doing that, but we all have to do that together to make the house complete. Are you the temple by yourself? No, to be sure, Christ lives in you, as Paul has said, and that is the hope of glory. But you're not complete. You can't do it by yourselves. You know, it's funny if you go back to that scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's put that up there. It's, it's the next slide. Where he says, don't you know that you yourselves... In the Greek it just says, don't you know that you are God's temple? You are God's temple. The reason our English translation says you yourselves is because we don't have a very good plural you, right? Like if I say, hey, you... Hey, you, let's go. I could say that to like both my kids, right? Hey, you, come on. And I mean both of them, right? How many of you took Spanish or French? How many of you remember your Spanish or French, right? So you have these different voices, right? In Spanish, um, all of of my Hispanic-oriented teachers did not ever make us learn vosotros. Some of you were like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Vosotros is the plural you. There's an actual word that you use to delineate between you singular and you plural. And it's basically like the y'all. Okay? So we do have it in English. It's just in the southeast United States that we use it. Y'all. Right? So instead of writing y'all, the English translators wrote, do you know that you yourselves, plural are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. Okay? The word for temple, however, is singular. 
So you yourselves, all of you, make up one singular house, one singular temple. You all don't get, y'all don't get to be little tiny temples all by yourselves. And that's what people are saying, by the way, in the, in the common phrase that I hear that you've heard as well. Well, like, being at the beach is my, that's my church. Being out in the forest, that's my church. What you're saying is I get to be the temple by myself. What you're really saying is I need some time off and I need to relax. I need a Sabbath. But don't pretend like that's church over there by yourself. Church is people, plural. And it's okay to have a Sabbath and find God there. But don't confuse the two, okay? Don't confuse the two. Our culture wants to confuse the two because this is America, y'all. And it's all about me and mine and myself. Instead of maybe if we all did this together in like every area of life, it would be a whole lot better. <laughs> you know, it would be a whole lot better. So the you is plural and the word for temple is singular. You are all one. One what? One temple, the place that God dwells. We are the temple. Remember the image that we started with today, where we started this message. Why do you go to a temple? To find out what that God is like. God has left the temple. And he says, I'm living in you. In other words, this temple, it started out as a tabernacle and it was mobile. And then you tried to put me in one spot, but I'm God. And I want to live in you. And the temple needs to be mobile again. And it needs to leave the building. And it needs to go show the world what God is like. Because the world is not coming to it anymore. You guys tracking with me? Are you tracking with me? And you, and by the way, let's go back to last week. And you've got a thing that you need to exercise in this church body to help it be the body that it needs to be. To help it live that message and represent that God. Because the temple shows the world what that God is like. It's about us together. It's about us together. Anybody ever do any construction work or contracting? Anybody contractor in here? Yeah, I know Bob, you've done a lot of construction work for us lately. But it, in the last year or two, it's like we're always like working on stuff. And it, you know, a contractor's job is to understand that there's all these pieces and how they fit together and what order they need to be used so that if you, you know, the simplest way of saying it is if you only measure once, you will cut twice versus measuring twice so that you will only cut once when you're doing a, a building project. But there's all these pieces that have to go together in the right, right way and in the right time in order to, to complete the project. So what do you start with? You start with the foundation. And then you build the walls. You need windows, headers, support beams, all this kind of stuff. You need electrical and HVAC and plumbing and insulation. And some of you are one of those things. Some of you are insulation. You warm the place up. You keep it nice and cozy. Right? And some of you bring the heat. And some of you provide the electricity. And some of you provide the plumbing. And some of you make it pretty. <laughs> right? And some of you organize it. Right? We all have a piece. We all have a thing. We all have a thing that God has given us 
like we talked about last week, this gift that he gave you that he wants to use. And, he, and again, I want to clarify, he doesn't want to use you like a battery that he just pops in a flashlight and when it runs out, he throws it away. No, he's like, you're a flashlight to shine my light all around, but I can continually recharge you by USB. <laughs> and I want to use the thing in you, the light. I don't want to use you up and throw you away. I want to use the thing that I gave you that makes the church the church. So it's incomplete if you think you have a gift, but you can only use it by yourself. That's only one part of it. The other part of it is that you have to use it with everyone else. It's incomplete if you don't participate with the rest of us. So there's this balance. Now here's the big, here's the big deal with all this. God left the building and he's shown himself off to the world through us. Together. Together. This, and I want... The question is, why? Why did he do it? It's like he knew where we were going to go. If we just stayed static in one little place and expected everyone to come to us, he's like, yeah, that doesn't work. It's like I tell our elders, all ministry has a shelf life. All of it does. You can't just say, we're going to do this till the cows come home and help and think that that's going to help. All ministry has a shelf life. So if this is not working, you put it up and you try something else, right? And God's like, I tore that curtain and I got the heck out of there so that I could be with the people that I love, okay? I want to tell you why he did this. Let's, let's look at Romans verse, chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. In case you forget that scripture, it's right here on the front. It's the main one I want you to stay with today. And here's what it says. Love starts with love. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Why would you be devoted to somebody else in love? Why, does that, why do we even need instruction for that? Huh. Honor one another above yourselves. Wait. Above yourselves? This is America. Hello. <laughs> this is the 21st century. We could say the same thing in Canada or in England or in France. This is France. It's all about me. It's really, a, yeah, never mind. I won't go there. Slam the friend. If you're French, I'm sorry. So um, that's a really American thing to do. <laughs> so apparently it's a British thing to do, but I won't go there, Barry. Um, honor one another above yourselves. Isn't this, I mean, that's, he has to say that because we think it's all about us. Isn't this all about me? In biblical times, it wasn't all about me. It was all about community. If we didn't make our decisions with regard to the community, everything breaks down. And guess what? Still the same way. If you don't make all your decisions with regard to the community, everything breaks down. If you make your decisions about church without thinking about how it's going to affect everyone else, then it all breaks down. That's the way it goes. So he says, honor, your, honor, honor one another above yourselves so that we can function together. And then he moves on. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your, keep your spirits fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. 
Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Gosh, I need to hear this today. I don't know about you. Why are we being commanded to do all of these things? Because it seems like Paul thinks we need a reminder. Why? I'll tell you why. Because I can't do any of these things by myself. Be joyful in hope. If I just want to sit in the mix of depression or what's something that's keeping me down, it's not going to help me to be alone for forever. Joyful in hope. Patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. He's saying do all this together. Part of our structure here at church is not just about Sundays and worship music and a preacher to listen to. Our structure is about doing life together for the sake of others. That's the other part of it. That's why we have mountains as our logo to remind us of the three things that we do. We, we want to be like Jesus. We want to do this together for the sake of others. We call it up, in, and out. And if those things are out of balance, think of it as one of those old cowboy chairs, like a three-legged stool. And if one of them is out of balance, you're going to fall over. The church will tip over. So our structure is not just about this day. It's about everything else. It's why we end our service by saying, see you throughout the week, and we get to start immediately with some really good food today. You will probably not be shepherded very well in any church unless you join a small group. You will probably not be shepherded very well in this church unless you join a kinfolk group. Look around the room, This is, and there's a bunch of people missing today from our church, but if... if just in this crowd, if you expected me to do all the shepherding for all of you instead of equipping the rest of us throughout both groups to do the shepherding, you're not going to feel it. You're not going to have it. That's why I won't shut up about kinfolk groups. And they just started last week. Right? You have to have community. When a baby in our kinfolk group has a birthday, we all get to celebrate. When anybody has a birthday, we get to celebrate. We, we get to party. And when a kinfolk group has a loss, we all come around together and mourn with those who mourn. Paul goes on. He says, live, in the next slide, live in harmony with one another. Maybe I got it out of order. Huh? Yes, I did. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Or don't be conceited. Don't associate with people of low position. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I hope you're not missing it. Am I missing it? Are you missing it? Where, where's the temple? Is the question. Where is it? Where is it? It's in you. It's in me. It's in we. It's in us. And what does the temple tell us again? It tells us what our God is like. It shows other people what our God is like. Let's put up that next slide. It means everywhere we go, everywhere we go, we're telling everybody what our God looks like by the way you live, the way you speak. 
the way you treat your, your family, the way you treat your neighbors, the way you treat your friends, the way you treat your coworkers, the way you are, your very being. Another way to put it is this. How we interact together tells the story of God. And the question is, are you telling a good story? Are you telling a good story? Paul says, don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, it's funny, people will say, some people get stuck on leave room for God's wrath, and they go, see, God's, God, I don't want anything to do with your God. But they forget the, last, the, the latter part where he gives instruction from the scriptures and says, here's what your God is really telling you to be like. This is the, this is the very essence of who God is, his love for us, because we are all his enemy. We've betrayed him. And here is where it's at. It says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, here's what I want you to leave with today. Here's what I want you to know deeply. God chose not to be in a building. He chose not to be in a building. He chose to live in you. He chose to live in we. He chose to live in us. And every one of us has a piece. If you're just a stone on some mountain, and we're not all together, working together, at best, that just means you're isolated. You're living in isolation, right? At worst... It means you're causing like some kind of avalanche or you're causing a cave-in or something like that at worst. You're going to turn into this. Let's do that next slide. You're going to be rubble. You're going to make ruins. Okay? You, make, you don't let us build the wall in the first place if you don't participate with that thing that God gave you. But then if you think it's all about you on your own apart from everyone else, then it turns into that. In other words. So we all have a piece of the temple, and to make it complete, we've got to function together. We've got to work in community because we were designed to be that way. Our God, our triune God, lives and breathes community with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And He says, you need each other. You need each other. We're designed to be in community. God would rather live in you and me, in us, than in a building. And that's how we're going to show the world who he is and how he is and what his love is like. He does not need a statue. He doesn't need a statue of himself in the Holy of Holies to show everybody who he is. It's, it's incredibly humbling and just a very shocking thought to sit with this this. this Phrase, God, he doesn't, but he does. God needs you. <laughs> that is just crazy. He needs you. He needs us. Because we are the temple. We are the temple of God. Would you pray with me? Father, Buildings do not show the world what you are like. 
not fancy architecture, not stained glass. Sure, Father, we know that those things can be beautiful. But we know that we can show the world what you are like. The way we do that, Father, is through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit of your Son, Jesus, living in and through us together. I pray that this sinks into our hearts as we sang before, that you would open the eyes of our hearts and let this sink in so that we can live it out each and every day, throughout each and every week, so that your church would be a light of hope and love and compassion, and that more would come to know you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.